One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi there, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text podcast team. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. Hey, Vanessa. Hey, Casper. Hey, Casper and Vanessa. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. I'm Casper Terkyle, and this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Hello, everyone. It's Casper. And it's just Casper because Vanessa is sick in bed today. So I'm on my own in the studio, but not totally on my own because with me is our producer, Ariana Edelman. Hi, Ariana. Hi, Casper. Hello. You are a real person, it turns out. (laughs) Today, we're joined on the show by one of my favorite public religious leaders. His name is the Reverend Canon Broderick Greer, and he's the Canon Precentor at St. John's Cathedral in Denver, Colorado. Hi, Broderick. So good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I have been looking forward to this, Casper. Well, so have I. And I should say that Broderick has like the best Twitter game on social media that I know. If you want insightful theological commentary and sassy cultural banter, go and follow at Broderick Greer. He's written for The Guardian, for Teen Vogue and On Being. And I'm just I'm so glad you're with us, Broderick. I need to keep you around. You sell me a lot better than I sell myself. (laughs) So, first of all, Broderick, you're ordained as an Episcopal priest, so liturgy is a big part of church life. And I feel like you have a special love for liturgy. What what do you love about it especially? And we should say, maybe even explain what liturgy is for folks who haven't come across that word before. Yeah, liturgy is, if you've ever been to a church service, the thing that happens between The beginning of the service and the end of the service is the liturgy. The really practical things are the music, when the choir processes in, when the the cross processes in, in front of the choir, the vergers who lead all of the altar servers and acolytes in and the clergy in. And really, you know, we could say that liturgy is kind of the written text or the order of the service. But my argument is that liturgy is what happens between those words, sort of like, you know, music is what happens between the notes. Mm. And I even argue, like the Russian Orthodox theologian Alexander Shmeman, that the liturgy begins as people are getting in their cars to head to church on Sunday morning. In our case, four or 500 different places and really 
descends on our building and on our cathedral and hopefully is dispersed out back into the world. Oh, that's beautiful. I've never come across that, Broderick, and it makes me think about we have a little podcast show and and it makes me think of how people engage with listening. Some people might be turning it on as they drive home or go for a run or listen as a family. And just, I never thought about a podcast as a liturgical offering in a way. That's super cool. Broderick, you know, for, for those of us who are maybe unfamiliar with a, with a church context, an ordained man is one thing, but an ordained black gay man is another thing. And I'm so curious to learn from you how your own story has shaped your understanding of what religious life is all about, you know, your, your own practices and, and your own understanding of theological questions about what is God and what does it do in our lives? I mean, I'm really of the school of thought that I can't in any way understand God from anyone else's perspective. I can only speak from my perspective and my experience of God and the Black Missionary Baptist Church of my growing up years is very emotive and expressive physically. People dance, people fall out, people shout, people go back and forth with the preacher during the sermon. You know, that really informs me even today in the way that I understand that the body is central to prayer and and experience in the way that we encounter the holy, that it's the whole body that experiences love. It's the whole body that needs to pray, the whole body that needs to be emotive. So I came to the Episcopal Church, visited an Episcopal Church actually on Ash Wednesday of 2009 when I was in Mm. my freshman year of college at a Church of Christ college. I had become Church of Christ when I was 13. It's a Southern white fundamentalist denomination. And the Episcopal kind of approach to theology, renunciation of fundamentalism and literalism and what some scholars would call biblicism, sort of this idolatry of the Bible. This Episcopal way of approaching it really appealed to me. And that's just a quick synopsis of what drew me to the Episcopal Church and what took me into ordained ministry. You mentioned two things that really strike me. You know, when you were describing the liturgy, this sense of music between the notes and then just now that, you know, starting to explore the Bible in, in a different way from a kind of fundamentalist, literalist way of thinking. And one of the reasons we we wanted to have you on the show, Brodick, was to teach us a new spiritual practice, a new textual practice. And you shared that you have long been exploring the practice of marginalia. And so I'm so curious to learn what is marginalia? How do people use it? How does it show up in your practice? And it, it seems to be something about finding or creating text between the text or between the lines in some way. Absolutely. My um, my maternal grandmother was a devout missionary Baptist and had been since childhood. She was also a church musician and was the musician at the church I was baptized in for 40 years. And she had a green King James Bible, kind of a pocket Bible that by that time she'd had for about 20 years. It was just soaked in ink. 
And it was because she would write in the margins. It was, you know, very small and, and really there wasn't much space in the margins for anything. And I don't think it, it was meant to have ink in it, but she would write the sermon text and the title of the sermon and the person who preached it. And so I would go back through this Bible and look, you know, what was preached on September 21st, 1987, before I was even born. And so you see this ongoing conversation between my grandmother and the Bible and my grandmother and these preachers and my grandmother and her own thoughts about different texts in the Bible. And it gave me this sense from an early age that the Bible is fluid. It is open to interpretation. I loved to see, okay, well, this, you know, this is Matthew 6, 6 or Matthew 6, 33. And there are four different preachers over the last 25 years who have preached on this text. And they all have different interpretations and they all have different sermon titles. So marginalia is is really taking ownership and responsibility and liberty with text. My grandmother was this highly literate, highly musical, deeply spiritual person who, if the times had been different, probably would have been a minister herself. And to think about, you know, from an early age that someone somewhere taught her the practice probably of taking the text and making it her own through the simple and liberating act of writing. That really taught me a lot about a kind of generative approach to religious texts. Broderick, what was her name? Her name was Fairy Turner. Fairy. Yes. And she grew up on a Mm. farm in East Texas that her dad actually owned, and they were direct descendants of enslaved people. And it was really important to her parents that her and her four siblings all be literate, all value education. And they did. And just to think about, you know, what life probably was like for them on their land and the fact that they even own land at the turn of the 20th century as Black people is truly remarkable. Our The land is still in our family, and, and none of us know exactly how my great-grandfather came about it. Wow. But the connection to land, the connection to growing their own you know, fruits and vegetables and canning it, this earthiness uh, really informed my grandmother long after she moved away from that farm. Broderick, I can't help but see a con- connection between that use of land, ownership of land, and the the fruit that it grew, and the ownership and the use of the text, mm. and the way that it shaped not only your grandmother, but you. Like The fact that you said about that green King James Bible that it wasn't meant to have writing in it. And the way that she claimed the page, she claimed the words on the page by not only kind of reflecting what the preacher might have brought into the text that particular week or drawn out of the text, but she was writing her own commentary and her own conversation for a woman who carried so many oppressed identities to make that mark in such a physical way. Is, it speaks to something that's powerful. Absolutely. And I, I think about the fact that when I was 13, I left that Baptist church and became Church of Christ, which is 
mainly white Southern fundamentalist denomination, and how I, over time, stopped writing in my Bible. Because in that tradition, the Bible is basically held above God. It was like writing on God. And I thought that that was irreverent to write Mm -hmm. in a Bible anymore. And in a way, the text owned me instead of the other way around. And so there was a time in my life where I stopped conversing with the text and was only open to hearing, you know, kind of in my own naive way, what the text thought about me instead of the other way around. You know, I I didn't grow up with any sort of religious background in my home, but the school that I went to was was an Anglican school. And I had a maths teacher who read the kind of small Christian union group. And I remember at some point it was made clear to me that being gay or lesbian was not in accordance with the Bible. And I'm just thinking about how when we put the text above God, as you said, the text can be weaponized in this very powerful way because it's seen to be inerrant. There's no mistakes in it, or at least it's uncomplicated. So I I just love that image of by us putting our pen onto the text, it's actually a way of also putting the text in its rightful place, maybe. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, it's subject to us in many ways. I mean, I mean, literary theory is pretty clear about that, that texts never speak. We only interpret I I think about my grandmother and I also think about, you know, someone at some point gave her permission to take ownership of the text, gave her church ownership of the text. Black preachers, it's so funny, they have this and, and Dr. Will Gaffney, she talks about this, how a black preacher will have this reverence for the Bible and reverence for the stories and and reverence for the literal words, but we'll take a liberty in the middle of a sermon. And the way that they'll cue the people to this liberty that they're about to take with the text, they'll say, now in my sanctified imagination, and then they'll give a riff on the story or what our Jewish friends would call a midrash on the story. And, And Dr. Gaffney has actually written a book called Womanist Midrash, which is her midrash on the whole Hebrew Bible, on the women who are named and go unnamed in the Hebrew Bible. But one of the great things about that Black preaching tradition of saying, in my sanctified imagination, is to say the conversation with the Bible, the conversation with our sacred texts, don't end, you know, with the final cover of the book. It continues, and and we are given the gift of imagining, and we're given the gift of taking liberties, and we're given the gift of, of riffing off of what people have thought and used to interpret and used to weaponize for thousands of years. This is ours to imagine with. I love this so much. And I I think, you know, obviously we're not doing this with the Bible. We're doing it with a piece of literary fiction with Harry Potter. And yeah, one of the questions I have is, do you think marginalia can work with fiction in the same way? And if so, how how would you go about teaching it and and participating in it? Well, I I mean, you think about fan fiction. That's marginalia at its best. Sort of saying, oh, my goodness. The author didn't think about this, so I will. And owning that and, 
you know, if this were the early 2000s, the early aughts, you know, the forums that would form around <laughs> fan fiction. And that is a a prime example of people being creative and ingenious and filling in the blanks, filling in the gaps of the stories that make the stories more exciting, more humorous, more accessible, and says this story is for all of us to add our riffs, to add our own harmonies, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use. What I would have loved from, you know, some good fiction that I read, the um, Hunger Games series. Yes. I would have loved a background story on Panem and how Panem yes. came into existence. But then you you think about, would it have been better for the author of the Hunger Games series to have written that prequel book? Or did she intentionally not give us a lot of background information so that we could imagine it ourselves? We, we have a sense that Panem is a successor to the United States, that the capital is no longer Washington, D.C., but probably Denver, actually. You know, so so you start filling in the blanks and you're like, oh my goodness, this it's even more fun to sort of speculate than it is to have an answer from the author herself. And I think that might be the way in for us to think about doing this practice ourselves is to find kind of unanswered questions and to play with what was it? The sanctified imagination to take the liberty of, of a sanctified imagination and yeah, bringing our own images into the text in some way. Well, I, I think about what doors are opened for us when we can name this. You know, we're already about this work of, of filling in the blanks, of writing in the margins. Um, who in our culture needs to name it that they're already doing it? And who in our culture needs permission? to name Marginalia, who is imagined out of stories and who needs to reimagine themselves back into them, you know, and whether it be a meta narrative, whether it be kind of a national history. And very rarely are my ancestors thought of being founders. I mean, they're, they're never listed among the quote founding fathers. You think about Right. The women who are not mentioned as the founding fathers, but who were very much a part of the founding of the United States. So who's allowed to have a sanctified imagination? Who's allowed to write in the margins? Who's allowed to own the story? It's a very democratic, small d democratic approach to text. Text as sort of popular work of the people work. That's beautiful. I love it. I want to thank you so much for being with us today, for teaching us about marginalia and sharing a little bit of your life story, but also for the work you do. I, I just so appreciate your insight and for the leadership that you constantly take in such a public way. So thanks for being with us, Broderick. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. Your podcast is awesome. I'm happy that it's growing in popularity and that People are engaging one of the most important texts of our lifetime in such a playful and wise way. So thank you for the gift that you are to so many of us. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Now on with the show. So going from Broderick's amazing description of marginalia, I want us to imagine these voicemails as marginalia in the text. Like we're reading one big book and now we get to hear other people's voices kind of written onto the side of the page. And one question that I've been following throughout these books, and I know it's a little silly, is the question of owls. What do they mean? Why are they here on the page? And to help us think that through is our first voicemail from Stephanie French. Hi, Casper and Vanessa. My name is Stephanie, and I live in British Columbia, Canada. I have some thoughts on Wizards' use of post-owls that I'd like to share with you. I started thinking about how using owls to carry mail is something that can be really noticeable to the Muggle community. We see several instances in the books of Muggles seeing and being confused or scared by post-owls. In the first book, we hear about how people all over Britain are shocked by the storm of owls flying around in daylight after Voldemort's defeat. In Chamber of Secrets, an owl swoops into the Dursley's house and terrifies Mrs. Mason, and then Hedwig later attracts a lot of attention when Harry and Ron can't get onto platform nine and three quarters. And in Goblet of Fire, those poor taxi drivers must have been so confused about Hedwig and Pigwidgeon. So what I'm wondering is, why do wizards continue to use owl post as their primary form of communication? After the Statute of Secrecy passed and the magical world went into hiding, wouldn't it have made sense for them to find a more discreet way to send mail? Wizards make such an effort to keep themselves hidden from the muggles, and yet they're sending owls flying all over the country at every hour of the day and night. I don't think that it's just owls that are somehow naturally amazing at finding people, because we're told that some of Sirius's letters to Harry are carried by tropical birds. So I feel like there must be other birds that could do the job, ones that aren't nocturnal and would attract less attention from the muggle population. Also, I'm wondering why it has to be birds in the first place. Couldn't they set up some kind of wizard postal service that works more like the muggle one? It just seems like there has to be a better way, one that doesn't risk exposing the magical community. So why do wizards keep relying on post owls? I'd love to hear your thoughts. I love the podcast. You guys are amazing. Bye. Stephanie, so many good points in so little time. This is the kind of thing I wanted to talk about, everyone. Okay, so first question, why don't the muggles notice the owls? And in fact, the answer is already known to us. They do. So why don't wizards care that we notice? 
Now, if Vanessa was here, she'd probably have a point about the patriarchy. So let me embody that first of all. Is this some sort of patriarchal construct whereby wizards are kind of gaslighting the muggle public, you know, making them feel like they're going crazy? Might be common knowledge that owls are nocturnal. And this is sort of a practical joke being played to make the muggle population think that it's going slowly mad seeing all of these birds in the sky to keep them confused and on edge. But perhaps this is more a sign from the wizarding world to prod the muggles to remember that there is more than the everyday explanation, that there are mysteries that cannot always be solved. And this one seems so abstract and so unexpected that the wizarding world is is kind of toying with the muggle world and just pushing it to remember that there might be some things beyond explanation. Maybe the wizards are just really inspired by ancient Greece and the mythology thereof because, of course, an owl was a symbol for wisdom. And so as you receive news, every owl is an invitation to read beyond the headlines. I think really the owls are a stance against fake news to to dig deeper than just the words on the page, to go beyond information and seek the wisdom underneath. Thanks, Stephanie. I really appreciate your questions. Next up, we've got a voicemail from Ali. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. My name's Allie, and I'm a huge fan of the podcast. But I, like Casper, have a lot of questions about owls. Specifically, like, what kind of magic do they have that the ministry can't tap into? Recently, I was listening to the beginning of Prison of Azkaban with my boyfriend, and I wondered why the ministry didn't just track the owls that were going to see Sirius. And if the owls know where they are, then why doesn't anyone else? Anyway, I had a very long talk about it with my boyfriend who didn't care that much. So I would love to hear your input. Thanks and have a great day, guys. Ali, first of all, are you sure you want to stay with that boyfriend? If he doesn't want to talk about owls, he's not the man for me. But secondly... Yes, that is such a great question. If the owls know how to find Sirius, why doesn't the ministry? Well, let's stick with our hypothesis number one, that the owls have some sort of magic which is untraceable. And that, to me, does not surprise me. Although wizards can fly using brooms, etc., they cannot fly themselves. And perhaps there's something special about how owls fly. This is something that actually builds on Stephanie's point. Can the owls use some sort of supersonic flight? Is there some sort of airborne port key that we are unfamiliar with as earthbound creatures? But mostly what I love about your point is that it speaks to this idea that there's something that animals experience that we cannot understand and certainly cannot control. The point about finding Sirius in the way that the ministry can't also speaks to the way that owls are able to have night vision. You know, they hunt at night. They're able to see beyond what human eyesight has. So there's something there about, you know, being able to find something very difficult. You know, think about hunting for a mouse in the middle of the night. How do you do that? And this theme comes back again and again. You know, we we see Sirius escaping Azkaban as a dog. There's this power of animals being able to do things that humans can't. I mean, even just thinking about how, you know, an albatross will fly for thousands and thousands of miles and then return home to the exactly the same space Growing up, we had swallows uh, that lodged in our house, and every year they would come back pretty much in the same day in early May. And so I feel like the owls in these books are pointing us to a deeper way of knowing that is embodied in animals and perhaps out of reach of our human nature. This voicemail, though not about owls, is about something else close to my heart, and it's from Camille. 
Hi Vanessa, hi Casper, hi Ariana. This is Camille in Los Angeles. I just finished your episode on resentment, and it brought up a character who's been on my mind and on my heart throughout this reading of The Goblet of Fire. You spoke a lot about Fred and George's camaraderie, and how they get each other through all of their resentments using joy and laughter, and of course we know much of Ron's resentments. But I have been haunted throughout this whole book by Percy Weasley. Don't laugh. <laughs> At the World Cup, every Weasley gets to stand out. Ron, for all we talk about him, is allowed to bring two friends with the Weasley family. And Fred and George have each other. And it seems like Bill and Charlie have each other as well. And of course, Ginny being the only girl, she gets specially treated within the family because of that. But Percy is stuck somewhere in the middle never quite getting the camaraderie the rest of the Weasleys enjoy, at least as we see it in the pages of the book. We laugh about him a lot, and he makes so many bad choices, but I wonder if he feels forgotten and thus resentful because of his place lost in the Weasley birth order. I just want to leave Percy Weasley a blessing here, and a blessing for all of us who sometimes feel lost within our family structures, and resentful of the way maybe the others around us are treated. And um, I hope that we can all see a way forward throughout our resentments to make the better choices that Percy makes towards the end. Thank you so much for everything. It means the world to me. Take care, you guys. Oh, Camille, that's so insightful. I, I'd never seen Percy at the World Cup in distinction to the rest of his family, specifically around friends. You know, we see him trying to be friendly with his co-workers, but they don't even know his name. And in some ways, I feel like we could look at each of the Weasley children and think about their sense of loneliness. I mean, obviously, Ginny, not only as the only girl, as you say, but also having experienced this intense trauma in book two, Ron, of course, is constantly feeling like he's not good enough, both in his family and with his friends. And perhaps with the twins, it's less simple. But again, you know, we really dug into the the sense of disconnection they had from Molly when they were starting up their mail order joke shop. So in some way, I think it's, you know, however you slice the cake, someone comes out slightly alone. And that's maybe something about the human condition. And it also says something about families. I think it's our primal place of belonging, but it's also the first place where we learn loneliness. This next voicemail is from Sophie Ralph, and she is responding to a point I made way back in season two, which feels like years ago. And in fact, is a year ago. Hey, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana, and everyone who makes Harry Potter and the Sacred Texts a possibility. I just wanted to say that, first of all, I love your podcast, and I am awfully behind, and I just finished season two, episode one, The Worst Birthday, and I just had a thought that I wanted to share with you. And in the Lectio Divina, Casper picked the quote on page eight, he'd almost be glad of a sight of his arch enemy, Draco Malfoy just to be sure it hadn't all been a dream. And one thing that Casper said was that it just was kind of childish for Harry to regard Draco as his arch nemesis or his arch enemy. And I sort of thought of it a different way because Casper said that we know who his arch enemy really is, and that's Voldemort. And he's even met him and faced him twice now, once as a baby and once in the last year. 
But what I thought was when you consider someone your nemesis or your arch enemy, there's this sense or feeling of equality or that the two people are well matched. And I think that Harry just doesn't consider himself a match to Voldemort, even though he stopped him as a baby and he sort of stopped him in this past year in the Sorcerer's Stone. He knows that last year he Voldemort was not at his maximum capacity, I guess, and he's not at full power, and he doesn't feel like he's qualified to completely get rid of Voldemort once and for all, and that he's not strong enough or not powerful enough to stop Voldemort altogether. But he does consider himself an equal of Draco Malfoy because, you know, in the battles that they have, Draco wins some and Harry wins others, and there's that sense of equality there, but I just don't think that Harry feels that with Voldemort. And one thing that this reminded me of in my own life was last year, there was this girl who was in a lot of my classes, and she would always copy my work and leave me to do a lot of the work in the group projects, and she always just made me really frustrated. And I kind of considered her to be my nemesis or my arch enemy, but I realized after some thought that it wasn't her who was my enemy, my arch enemy. It was the teacher, this bigger force, because I knew that he wouldn't care and that he didn't really, he just didn't care. And I was also mad at the school system that they were allowing this to go on and that they taught that getting a good grade was more important than one's morals or integrity or cheating. And I figured out that that is really what my arch enemy was, not her. But I feel like there isn't a sense of equality, that they're bigger than me, that they're stronger than me. And maybe that's what Harry needs to figure out, is that even though he feels less than, he isn't less than Voldemort. He is his equal, which we find later in the prophecy. So, yeah. Sophie, you're incredible. Uh, you're in high school, and that is a level of awareness and insight which I wish I had at your age. I think you're so right. I think you're so right that a an arch nemesis is actually more about seeing ourselves as equal. And in fact, Harry never sees himself as equal throughout the books to Voldemort. I mean, even at the very end, right, he offers himself in sacrifice. It's not a vanquishing or a conquering. And it's that you know, sacrificial love, really, that ends up being the secret weapon that defeats Voldemort. No one could overpower him by strength alone. So I think it's super insightful. And and in fact, what makes rivalries fun is that they are, as you say, one day you're winning, the next day you're losing. And there's this, this constant tension and back and forth. Because if you're always winning, then it's not a rivalry, right? Then you're just, you're just the best. But if you're constantly losing, then you feel like you don't even have a chance. And I think it's so smart towards the end of the voicemail where you were saying that, you know, your rivalry with an individual was actually uh, enabled by a bigger structural system because sometimes it's in the system's interest for us to be pitted against each other. And we, I think we should always ask the question, whose benefit is it that I'm in this rivalry? Is it actually to my benefit? Love that voicemail. So that's our show, everyone. We really missed Vanessa. It's very lonely in the studio without her because she sometimes supplies me with chocolates. So we hope you feel better soon, Vanessa, and we miss you lots. 
Hi, everybody. I'm so sorry that I was sick today and missed that conversation with Broderick and missed responding to all of your weird owl theories, Um, but I'm excited that I get to listen to the episode with everybody else. That'll be a new experience for me. Um, We just wanted to make a quick announcement before the end of the episode, which is that on Sunday, April 8th, we will be doing a live show in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, We are so excited to be coming to the Midwest, and we all love Minneapolis. We're going to be doing the show at On Being Studios, and we're just thrilled, and we hope that you can join us April 8th. Go to our website, harrypottersacredtext.com, and click on the big orange button in order to buy tickets. We hope to see you there. And you're welcome, Casper and Ariana, for not coming into the studio and sharing my flu with you. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or leave us a review on iTunes. I love to read those. If you enjoyed the voicemails today, you too can send one, even about owls, because Vanessa isn't here. <laughs> Just record yourself on your phone and send the file to harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Or leave us a review on iTunes. I really love to read them. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 19, The Hungarian Horntale, through the theme of delight. This episode is produced by Ariana Nedelman, me, Kasper Terkail, and Vanessa Zoltan, and our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll. We are part of the Panoply Network, where you can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. Enormous thanks to everyone who sent us a voicemail, and especially to Stephanie French, Ali Bride, Camille Knox, and Sophie Ralph. And, of course, to our very special guest, the Reverend Canon, Broderick Greer. Thanks also to Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, Julia Argy, and Stephanie Purcell. Or perhaps they're more inspired by the ancient Welsh tribes. No, what, ancient Welsh peoples? Peoples of Wales? Is it a cultural thing or is it a religious thing? It's associated with fertility. If a pregnant woman heard an owl hoot, then it was believed she would have an easy labor. (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.